0: going to start by making a cut in the middle of our chicken breast, and then we're going to fill it with some tin foil.
1: Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture, and this week is a momentous one. And no, I am not talking about the Queen finally kicking the bucket today. ICYMI is finally getting its long-deserved recognition on an international stage in none other than the dictionary. On Wednesday, Merriam-Webster announced that it was inducting more than 350 new words and terms into its hallowed halls of lexiconical fame. Including yeet? Great choice. Pumpkin spice? Meh. MacGyver and Luke, spelled L-E-W-K, pronounced Luke, not look. But the thing is, I don't give a shit about any of these, because the most important addition is I-C-Y-M, motherfucking I. Some of you might be sitting at home thinking, Rachel, that's just an abbreviation. You named your show after an abbreviation, and they're adding it to the dictionary. And to you, I would say, quit being a motherfucking hater, You're just trying to keep a bad bitch down because I know deep in my soul that when you look up, I see why I'm in the dictionary now, you'll see a little cartoon head of my face. And that is powerful. Mama, I made it. On today's show, we are going to be talking about food specifically the wild and constantly changing world of the internet food content economy despite how much i love food and i love food to the point that i will not eat if the food is not good we actually don't discuss it that often here on the show unless it's something viscerally disgusting like pink sauce or viral like the emily mariko salmon bowl which i continue to eat once a week and that's a conservative estimate So when we decided to do today's episode, I knew I needed to call in an expert. Later in the show, y'all will be hearing from one of my favorite food writers and internet presences, Bettina McAlentil. She's currently a reporter at Eater, and she's written for Bon Appetit and Vice. She also has an absolutely incredible TikTok, at Crispy Egg 420, where she documents some of the beautiful food she's eating, and it is chef's kiss in. Like the original iteration of the term. Together, we'll be discussing the changes that TikTok has wrought on internet food content, the kind of inherent entitlement that we as viewers tend to approach food content with, and the bygone era of tasty videos. All of that after a short break. And we're back with Bettina McAlentil, a reporter for Eater who has been covering internet food culture for about four years
0: now. When I sort of came into food writing, it was like 2018. So it was still very like the height of Instagram. And so I think it was sort of like the, you know, we were really hitting that sort of like professionalization of Instagram, or it was like, a lot of people were professional bloggers and professional sort of Instagram creators. And they sort of, you know, they had that like look of stylized, perfect Mm -hmm. food. And I think that the thing, the really big change that I've seen uh, more recently has sort of been like the rise of TikTok, right? And sort of like this like destabilization of the like professional Instagram food or food blogger model. And it's sort of much more like anyone can sort of make food content now. And it's like, there is sort of thus of the sense that everything needs to look sort of perfect or that you mm-hmm. need to be you know, a particular kind of chef or a particular kind of recipe developer to be making food content. And so I think it's like now we're just sort of seeing like a lot more people making things um, and a lot more people sort of like being included in like the food content world.
1: Yeah, definitely. I feel like 2018 was around maybe the end of the Tasty video era, um, where everything was like the disembodied hand shot from overhead. And now we have the kind of, I feel like the content I gravitate towards is usually what people describe as like cozy. So like you actually know who the person is who's making it. I do think that's like TikTok kind of revolutionized that.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it was partially just also like with COVID, like so many people were home Mm -hmm. and so many people were cooking. And then we're just also sort of like making coincidentally making videos on their phones.
1: 2020 was also the moment when TikTok really came to dominate the U.S. social media scene. It's the year when... I'm going to say adults because the teens have always been up on this shit where adults realize that the platform was more than like Charlie D'Amelio dancing. So you have this kind of seismic shift away from the professionalized, glossy Instagram aesthetic towards the sort of intentionally homespun TikTok vibe, which brings us to a beautiful tweet that you sent out on August 30th. Something I've been thinking about a lot, especially after seeing complaints about Emily Mariko's bowls as boring, repetitive, is how so much food online is interpreted and assumed as primarily done for other people and audience as product content versus nourishment with filming secondary. And I have to ask, like, what inspired this tweet? What were you doing at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday <laughs> <laughs> that had you just ready to send off this incredibly like, <laughs> succinct tweet? <laughs>
0: Okay, so I think part of it is that like w- there was like sort of this conversation happening about gloves and cooking videos like at that time and sort of how, you know, a lot of people are weird about gloves on like when they watch a video. Like there's sort of this expectation that people, you know, some people really want to see anyone cooking like wearing gloves for some reason, mm. but also sometimes it's kind of weird because it's like a lot of people are just cooking at home for this, themselves, but so why would they wear gloves, right? Yeah. And so there was sort of like this, this little conversation on Twitter just about you know, how people are wearing gloves and sort of like gloves is sometimes like indicating that food is like meant to be sort of consumed by other people and not just Mm. like something that the creator is going to like eat themselves. Right. But also I think the bigger picture thing is just that as a person who has sort of like accidentally uh, become a person who like shares a lot of my cooking online, I think that I, you know, I see a lot of these sort of expectations around you know, what people, how people sort of are interpreting food, even if it's just like, you know, I would describe myself as like a normal person who likes to cook, like posting my cooking. But I think that sometimes when I'm like posting my cooking or seeing the, seeing the way people interact with my content, I can tell that they see sort of, you know, they don't see it as just like me making lunch. They see it as like a video that they should learn from and the food is sort of there for like their instructional benefit, for example.
1: You mentioned Emily Mariko in your tweet, and I think that she kind of perfectly gets to this dynamic that you're referring to, this idea that making food content is inherently instructional rather than for the edification of the person creating it. That's the sound of Mariko making one of her dishes. Most of her videos don't include her voice. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with Mariko, we did an episode on her viral salmon rice bowl that, as I said, I still eat at least once a week. The episode is called The TikTok Salmon Bowl Can't Save Us, and it came out on October 16 of last year. All of this to say, Bettina, how do you feel about Mariko?
0: I find her videos very enjoyable. I find her food very enjoyable like it's a lot of stuff that I would eat and I think that like the interesting thing has been like to see sort of the backlash to Emily Marco in that it's like I think there's this thing on the internet where like a person or a thing gets to a certain level of sort of popularity or views and then people just start hating for no reason right like and so I feel like Emily Marco is a person who's very much ended up in this position that like I'm not sure that she like meant to be TikTok sort of like go-to like casual cooking person but it just sort of ended up that way and so I think that you know and I think that's opened her up to a ton of like sort of weird criticism that I think that you know if I like I as a fairly normal person like start cooking you know you could very much make the argument that like my food is like boring or repetitive or that Mm -hmm. I do some weird thing with my posture or whatever right but I think that like (laughs) I think that sometimes the criticism she gets is sort of like overblown just because she's so big
1: I remember when the salmon bowl first went viral, there was this almost surprise that someone that looked like her was eating rice because I think so many people are used to aspirational food
0: content. I think the part of this too, speaking of the aspirational thing is like, I feel like we're in an interesting moment with like, almost like a backlash to inspiration, aspirational things like Mm -hmm. the photo jump aesthetic and this sort of like, presenting yourself on the internet in a way that seems more like air quotes real has made I think a lot of people sort of immediately you know dislike anything that sort of looks air quotes like intentionally aspirational but I think the thing that I like think about a lot is the fact that like sometimes people are doing things on the internet that like has that per- that, that like image of being aspirational but it's not really meant to like I don't think it's like I, I don't know I think that sometimes I'll get comments about like my food being a lot of effort or a lot of work right and I think But it's mostly because I like it. It's not because I'm trying to, like, you know, create some image that I think other people need to sort of opt into.
1: Okay, so I love that you're bringing up your kind of accidental foray into influencing. It is actually one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. You single-handedly turned last summer into my summer of big metal bowl salads, and I have not looked back since. But did you notice this inherently instructional dynamic for us as a creator or as a journalist?
0: I think I always noticed from afar the sort of like, you know, someone posts a picture and they'll get like a recipe in the comments, right? Mm-hmm. Like even if, if there isn't a recipe, they'll like, people will request it. So I think I sort of noticed that, but it didn't really sort of, but I don't think I really sort of thought about it in a bigger picture sense until I had start. I started posting my own content.
1: Yeah. So when you say a bigger picture sense... What do you think this dynamic, where do you think it's emerged from and what do you think it kind of says about where we are right now in terms of like internet food content?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think part of it is like, is that transition from sort of like the blogger Instagram era to this like, democratized TikTok food era, where like, I think that a lot of people sort of got used to seeing, you know, blogger recipes on Instagram, and they knew it would come with a recipe. And they knew that it was going to be something that was like, you know, that would, it would click through to a blog or it would be like some way of promoting someone's cookbook or something like that. And Mm. I think that like with TikTok, you know, and more people making things and like, I think that TikTok, you know, spans this much bigger range of like educational videos, but there's also like the vibey ASMR stuff that's like fully just for like, you know, the feeling and not sort of the instruction. And I think that's part of it is sort of not everyone who's watching it understands that sort of breadth of like content types And so I think that sometimes people will see things that are meant to be sort of like vibes or ASMR or just like archiving or documenting. And I think they still sort of bring that like expectation of sort of the previous era to it. So I think that is sort of like the big thing, because with TikTok, you're not, you know, I think even more so than Instagram, you're like not really controlling how you see something or like what you don't see the context of like a creator's other work. You're just sort of seeing the video and like putting your own expectations onto it.
1: Yeah, TikTok really collapses context in a way that no other social media platform has before, right? Like when you follow an Instagram food blogger or you follow someone on Tumblr or Twitter, you know what kind of content you're signing up for, whether it be vibey or shit posting or instructional. But TikTok's algorithm just puts anyone into your FYP, which means that viewers are really kind of just pulling creators into their own context. There's this interesting dynamic I see now in the comment section where a commenter will ask a creator to do something like a certain makeup look or a recipe or try out something or whatever. And the creator will comment back, I've already done that, just scroll back. And that dynamic seems really specific to TikTok. The demand for a recipe on every food video is really interesting, especially for someone like you, Bettina, who isn't trying to do this full time. You're just posting to post
0: yeah I think like I mean I think that's the thing that makes it weird is that like I'm fully just posting for myself and I sort of enjoy the act of like lately I haven't because it's so much work but like I I do sometimes enjoy the act of like filming or like making the content right and I'm like doing that because I like it and I'm not necessarily doing it because I want to show like the most discreet like understandable steps for a viewer you know
1: Mm -hmm. where do you think that kind of it's almost a sense of entitlement. Where do you think it comes from?
0: Oh, yeah, it's definitely a sense of entitlement. I think it's just I mean, it's just the fact that people are so used to everything on the internet being free for so long, you know, like, mm. it's like, it's like the recipe thing, or it's the expectation that, you know, your favorite creator is going to respond to you and tell you where they got their genes. Like there is just this, I think we've just like gotten to this point where the internet where people just expect things. And they don't want to do this sort of, like, extra step of, like, opening up the Chrome tab and, like, searching <laughs> for it themselves. They, like, expect that it should be there for them.
1: Okay, okay, hold that thought because we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss how this sense of entitlement affects creators, whether it's specific to food content and the default assumption that everyone posting online is trying to be a capital C content creator. And we're back with Bettina. Before the break, we were talking about the ways that TikTok collapses the context that creators are creating in. And how that encourages viewers to basically assume that the creator of every piece of content that crosses their feed has the same intent, which is to be an influencer. But Tina, you came up with a great term for this in a follow-up tweet to the one we were discussing before the break. You described it as the everyone is a content creator economy. Can you tell me a little bit more about this?
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's hard. I think, it, but I think that, like, I don't know. I hate, like, pointing every, like, being like everything is because of TikTok. But I do think that, like. I mean, it's a seismic shift. Like, the <laughs> app changed a lot. Like, I do think that like TikTok, for example, like made a lot more people feel like they like I feel like before with YouTube, it didn't feel like you were like I didn't feel like I was going to like make a video of my morning routine. Right. Like it felt a lot more like inaccessible or felt like more work. And I feel like with with TikTok, we sort of normalized like everyone filming everything and sort of Mm -hmm. interacting with daily life in a way that is like you are aware of how you could present it to other people.
1: Part of that seismic shift that TikTok's really kind of honed is the ability to go viral without intending to. And that existed and exists on other platforms like Twitter and Tumblr, somewhat on Facebook, but the TikTok algorithm really does sometimes seem to just pick things to go viral at random, turning normal people into public figures overnight. See, couch guy. But what that's created to me, and at least it sounds like to you as well, Bettina, is this pervasive idea that basically everyone's trying to be an influencer until proven otherwise. And if it's coming from an influencer, it's aspirational. And if it's aspirational, it needs to come with an instruction manual.
0: I mean, I think if anything, I think it's just going to I I don't know, I think we're just moving in a direction where like, you know, because it seems like increasingly more TikTok chefs are like trying to sell you something or there's more and more people who are using TikTok as a way of promoting like this thing that they're going to mail to you or sell for you or whatever. Right. And so I think we're just moving more into this thing where people interpret sort of what they're seeing on TikTok, especially with food as like some sort of ad or some sort of product or something that they can opt into in their personal lives. Yeah, and that
1: really feels especially true with food.
0: I think it's partially that so much of how people have interacted with food media content, you know, pre-social media even, was like intended to be instructional. Like if you watched the cooking the food network, for example, everything like most sort of food things you watched were either like completely a competition or it was like a a cooking host sort of explaining everything to you. And I don't think that we've had necessarily like these like examples of like vibey food content <laughs> or like ASMR mm-hmm. food content really until you know the social media era and I think that like especially you know a lot of that was easy to sort of ignore on YouTube like I think there's a lot of people who still never saw like ASMR food on YouTube it just sort of like passes them by yeah. but I think like on like an Instagram feed or in a TikTok FYP that stuff sort of like you know it's it's going to new people for the first time I think.
1: Something I've been thinking about lately is how this affects people of color specifically. Like, the demand that a dish be easily replicable really does just kind of end up exotifying certain cooking techniques or ingredients. And it's usually those that most Westerners haven't interacted with. Like, to be aspirational has to be relatable, and what's deemed relatable is usually what's deemed white,
0: I don't know. I think that people of color definitely, I feel like especially with food, there sort of is more scrutiny almost. Yeah. Like, for example, like, I noticed that, like, I did a thing in a cooking video that I saw, like, a much bigger white food creator do. Not that, Mm -hmm. you know, not that much before me. And, like, I definitely got more criticism for it. Mm. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Because, you know, because it's, like, the same technique. Not like I'm necessarily, like saying anything different or doing anything that's, like, super different. But I was like, this is an interesting sort of, like, data point. I think race definitely affects sort of how sometimes people perceive your authority on food content.
1: I feel like there's this way in which when people of color are cooking on TikTok that, like, the ingredients or the techniques or the dishes they're making are kind of framed as, like, inaccessible in a way that, like... Other people maybe might not be like, I remember like specifically like Emily Marco people are like, where do I find QP Mayo?
0: Totally. I think that also just from like a content creation standpoint, it's like if I'm putting a caption on something, right. It's like, what do I feel like is, like I feel like keeping Maya, for example, is so basic that you don't need to explain it, right? Yeah. But then sort of reading comments, you realize like certain things like, oh, maybe people would have preferred if there was a caption explaining it, right? Even though it's even if it seems like very familiar to me, like there is still the sense that you like sort of can't control who your audience is and that you might be that like there are people who might not understand sort of like my perspective or what I'm doing.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the, um, the explanational comma or whatever, where it's like, what exactly am I going to choose to explain to people and like why? And I feel like that when you're a content creator and that is the choice that you're making as your career, then you err on the side of doing more. But when you're just a normal person posting, it's like, why do I have to explain my life to you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That dynamic seems really frustrating of just wanting to share and document your own life only for people to come in and kind of demand a step-by-step tutorial. I see accusations of gatekeeping flying around a lot, especially on TikTok, when someone refuses to share how they do their makeup or where they got something, which... Okay, I have to say, sometimes I catch myself tapping on my non-influencer friend's Instagram posts to see where they got their dress, which means I'm also brain poisoned. And it is sometimes frustrating when you see something you like and you don't have the immediate link to go buy it. But I'm also not owed that information, you know? And on the flip side, I do think having access to these, like, aspirational lifestyles kind of fucks a lot of people over
0: you know, I think that there is this sense that if you're, I think there can be this sense that if you're not making like an elaborate, beautiful meal, or if you're eating something that's the same all the time, or that you're like making something that's just totally like thrown together, fully sustenance. Like, I think that sometimes that can feel like, a th- like it can feel like you're doing something wrong if you're not mm-hmm. sort of like, you're not doing the most with your food. And I think and I think that can be, that's really hard. Like, I think, I mean, I think the Instagram, like, blogger era was really hard in that it, like, set up all of these unrealistic expectations for people about how they should cook. And, like, you know, for most people, like, I cook in a really sort of, like, extra way because that's, like, what I like to do and I have the time and it's my main hobby. Um, but, you know, I think that sometimes this, like, way of presenting and interacting with food online can sort of ignore the fact that, like, most people don't wanna do that. Like, most people just, like, literally just wanna feed themselves. And I think the thing is also that, like, I always think about the fact that, like, there's so much stuff that I make that I don't post online, right? Like, mm. I am sort of, like, even though I'm sort of trying to be, like, a normal person cooking and I'm trying to show, you know, I'm, like, obviously still showing stuff that's, like, the best version and I'm not yeah. going to post every single day when I'm just eating, like, like tuna mayo on rice, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not posting that. Like, I've been eating that every day for breakfast, but, you know, it doesn't make it onto the feed. And so I think it's just, like, remembering, like, I feel like, Yeah, I feel like we're all sort of always remembering that, like, no matter what, like, no matter what, how things shift on sort of like what we're seeing on TikTok and Instagram, it's still always a choice of like what you're posting and what you're not sharing. I just think that we're in a sort of very interesting time for sort of like food and the Internet. And there are things that are exciting about the current moment where I'm like oh, there's like more normal people cooking and sharing their food. But then, you know, I think there's still a lot of these like existing pressures and expectations that we're still sort of falling into.
1: That was Bettina McAlintel, a reporter at Eater. You can find her on TikTok at Crispy Egg 420 and on Twitter at Bettina Mac. That is M-A-K. I really loved our conversation, specifically the fact that it released me from the pressure to cook every single beautiful meal that i see coming across my tiktok feed and i hope it did for y'all too all right that is the show we'll be back in your feed on wednesday so please subscribe it is the best way to never miss an episode to never miss a discussion about food please leave a rating and review in apple or spotify and tell your friends about us tell your chef friends about us you can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which also going to DM us your questions and your favorite TikTok recipes. I don't promise to make them. And you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at Slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. See you online or in the kitchen. Rest in power to the fucking queen. Hi, y'all. I hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening, then a welcome to the ICYMI squad. We are thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, that joke is made every single week. And we come out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You are currently listening to the Saturday episode. And this Wednesday's episode was on an illicit production of Hamilton put on by a church in a city in Texas, a city that happens to be my nemesis. You don't want to miss it.